Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Was there nothing worth fighting for? We are called to find something in our lives worth fighting for. On the 22nd of February 2014, I published a post on my blog. I titled it, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. It read, I'm no longer engaging with white people on the topic of race. Not all white people, just the vast majority who refuse to accept the legitimacy of structural racism and its symptoms. I can no longer engage with the gulf of an emotional disconnect that white people display when a person of colour articulates their experience. You can see their eyes shut down and harden. It's like treacle is poured into their ears, blocking up their ear canals. It's like they can no longer hear us. This emotional disconnect is the conclusion of living a life oblivious to the fact that their skin colour is the norm and all others deviate from it. At best, white people have been taught not to mention that people of colour are different in case it offends us. They truly believe that the experiences of their life as a result of their skin colour can and should be universal. I just can't engage with the bewilderment and the defensiveness as they try to grapple with the fact that not everyone experiences the world in the way that they do. They never have to think about what it means, in power terms, to be white. So any time they're vaguely reminded of this fact, they interpret it as an affront. Their eyes glaze over in boredom or widen in indignation. Their mouths start twitching as they get defensive. Their throats open up as they try to interrupt, itching to talk over you but not really listen because they need to let you know that you've got it wrong. The journey towards understanding structural racism still requires people of colour to prioritise white feelings. Even if they can hear you, they're not really listening. It's like something happens to the words as they leave our mouths and reach their ears. The words hit a barrier of denial and they don't get any further. That's the emotional disconnect. It's not really surprising because they've never known what it means to embrace a person of colour as a true equal with thoughts and feelings that are as valid as their own. Watching The Colour of Fear by Lee Manoir, I saw people of colour break down in tears as they struggled to convince a defiant white man that his words were enforcing and perpetuating a white racist standard on them. All the while, he stared obliviously, 
completely confused by this pain. At best, trivialising it. At worst, ridiculing it. I've written before about this white denial being the ubiquitous politics of race that operates on its inherent invisibility. So I can't talk to white people about race anymore because of the consequent denials, awkward cartwheels and mental acrobatics that they display when this is brought to their attention. Who really wants to be alerted to a structural system that benefits them at the expense of others? I can no longer have this conversation because they're often coming at it from completely different places. I can't have a conversation with them about the details of a problem if they don't even recognise that the problem exists. Worse still is the white person who might be willing to entertain the possibility of said racism, but who thinks we enter this conversation as equals. We don't. Not to mention that entering into conversation with defiant white people is frankly a dangerous task for me. As the heckles rise and the defiance grows, I have to tread incredibly carefully because if I express frustration, anger or exasperation at their refusal to understand, they will tap into their pre-subscribed racist tropes about angry black people who are a threat to them and their safety. It's very likely that they'll then paint me as a bully or an abuser. It's also likely that their white friends will rally around them, rewrite history and make the lies the truth. Trying to engage with them and navigate their racism is not worth that. Amid every conversation about nice white people feeling silenced by conversations about race, there's a sort of ironic and glaring lack of understanding or empathy for those of us who have been physically marked out as different for our entire lives and live the consequences. It's truly a lifetime of self-censorship that people of colour have to live. The options are speak your truth and face a reprisal or bite your tongue and get ahead in life. It must be a strange life, always having permission to speak and feeling indignant when you're finally asked to listen. It stems from white people's never questioned entitlement, I suppose. I cannot continue to emotionally exhaust myself trying to get this message across, while also towing a very precarious line that tries not to implicate any one white person in their role as perpetuating structural racism, lets their character assassinate me. So I'm no longer talking to white people about race. I don't have a huge amount of power to change the way the world works, but I can set boundaries. I can halt the entitlement they feel towards me, and I'll start that by stopping the conversation. The balance is too far swung in their favour. Their intent is often not to listen or learn, but to exert their power, to prove me wrong, to emotionally drain me, and to rebalance the status quo. I'm not talking to white people about race unless I absolutely have to. If there's something like a media or conference appearance that means that someone might hear what I'm saying and feel less alone, then I'll participate. But I'm no longer dealing with people who don't want to hear it, wish to ridicule it, and frankly, don't deserve it. That was a recording of Rennie Addo Lodge reading from her book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. I'm Blaine Harrison from Mystery Jets, and this is episode four of our podcast, things worth fighting for. I hope wherever you're listening to this, you're keeping well and managing to stay sane. During this slightly surreal and difficult time, we're inspired to create a safe space for amazing people from different backgrounds to share stories of activism and to shed some light on some of the biggest conversations of today, many of which have inspired the songs on our new album, A Billion Heartbeats. I'm speaking to you from Mystery Jet Studio in London, three and a bit months into lockdown, and the theme we're talking about on this episode is racial prejudice and discrimination today. Like millions of people around the world, and many of you listening, I'm sure, 
I found myself taking time out over the past few weeks to reflect on the brutal murder of George Perry Floyd at the hands of a white police officer in Minneapolis on the 25th of May. George, a black 46-year-old man, was placed under arrest after a convenience store employee called 911 and told the operator that a customer had bought cigarettes with a counterfeit $20 bill. In videos filmed by passing witnesses, Officer Derek Chauvin is seen pinning George to the ground with a knee pressed down on his neck, in spite of him repeatedly crying, I can't breathe, a total of 18 times. Chauvin didn't remove his knee until after George lost consciousness, a full minute after paramedics arrived at the scene. George's body went into cardiac arrest, and by the time the ambulance reached a nearby hospital, he was pronounced dead. Chauvin had kept his knee on George's neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. As rioting and protests broke out across the country the day after George's death, the police department fired all four of the officers involved in the episode, with three of the men since being charged with aiding and abetting second-degree murder, and Chauvin with second-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. Much like Breonna Taylor, Eric Garner, Jamal Robinson and many others before him, George was the latest victim in a long line of white-on-black police brutality in America. But this time, somehow felt different, like a spark had been lit. Whilst we're very accustomed to looking to America as an example of racial inequality, events over the past few weeks in Britain have reminded us that we also have much soul-searching to do of our own past. In Bristol, a statue of the 17th century slave trader Edward Colston was toppled to huge applause before being thrown into the same dock where his slave ships once moored. In Glasgow, street signs with links to tobacco merchants and slave owners were replaced by activists with the names of black campaigners, slaves and those who died in police custody. And in London, the word racist was sprayed on Winston Churchill's statue in Parliament Square, prompting a heavily policed counter-protest from alt-right nationalists and patriots, some of whom, alarmingly, were seen to be raising their arms in Nazi salutes. There's no doubt that a load of topless Englishmen in baseball caps holding up Heil Hitler's is a striking image of Britain hanging on to the last threads of Aryan imperialism by its coattails, and an original way to defend the legacy of a historical figure who, in his finest hour, was largely credited for extinguishing the spread of fascism. But the irony that in that same square also stands a monument to Nelson Mandela, the man who spent his life fighting for the liberation of South Africa from the regime that same man was directly complicit in reinforcing, tells a much truer story about how confused Britain's view is of its colonial past. This argument surrounding the rewriting of history through the lens of the present day is a problematic one. But something that's in no doubt in many of our minds is that we, white people, as an institutional power structure and as a race, have a whole lot of unlearning to do. George Floyd's death has sparked a new wave of Black Lives Matter protests across the globe. Attending one of the huge marches in London last Sunday, I was taken back by how different the atmosphere was to previous BLM marches I'd been on. There's no doubt that being in a massive crowd of people for the first time in months was a part of it, but still, it felt different this time, almost like a wake. Gone were the colourful banners and hype men and sound systems, in their place a sea of raised fists and black face masks, leaving only eyes to tell the story. Placards bearing George's last words, Mama, and I can't breathe, communicated a deep sense of shared grief and lived experience. 
I started thinking about times I'd seen friends discriminated against because of the colour of their skin. The time a black friend of mine had proudly bought her first home in a British coastal town a couple of years back, only to have been so disgusted by racial aggressions that she put it straight back on the market less than a month after moving in. I revisited the times I'd seen my South Asian bandmate, Kapil, pulled aside airport security to be patted down whilst his white friends were waved through to the departure lounge. Or of the times him and his cousins have been refused entry into clubs when we've been out on the town because of supposedly wearing the wrong shoes, or how they're routinely assumed to be the drug dealers at festivals. Later that day, I listened to Clara Ampho's impassioned message on her morning Radio 1 show speaking openly about how George's death had impacted her mental health. People want our culture and our talent, but they do not want us, she said. You can't enjoy the rhythm and ignore the blues. I proudly live in the London of Sadiq Khan, but I also live in a Britain today which is in large part shaped by Nigel Farage. Those worlds can coexist, and they do. Rural England is a different story, but it's worth noting that for those of us living in cities, our social groups are overlapping circles, not singular bubbles. And those overlaps are where the most important conversations are happening right this minute while you're listening to this podcast. Like many white people, I've been thinking about this term, white privilege, and have been asking myself what role I personally have to play. And as a white artist, questioning how to use my voice increasingly conscious of how we as a band are taking up space the very reason we set out to make this podcast was to help signal boost and amplify people whose voices feel starkly absent from the mainstream but i also recognize the imposter syndrome which i and a lot of white people feel in regards having these conversations we don't want to slip up or say the wrong thing but you know what's worse saying nothing at all White silence equals white violence has been one of the most recurring messages in the BLM movement, and that message really couldn't be any clearer than right now. I don't think the enemy of kindness is evil. It's indifference, numbness. The moment we start to become indifferent, we lose our humanity. And when that happens, you can do anything to those people. It's no coincidence that with the racism and sexism in America right now that minorities are compared to animals. They're dehumanised, and what art does is rehumanise them by telling their stories. Words from Turkish writer and campaigner Elif Shafak. So here are some things that I want to say about that. Join something. Start something. Let's not ask ourselves if we're doing enough. Let's ask what more we can be doing. Instead of simply identifying as a non-racist person, let's be actively anti-racist. And don't worry, being an ally isn't the same thing as reinforcing white saviour stereotypes. Also, calling out racial discrimination where we see it is not virtue signalling. Remember that so-called woke-watching is not activism. It's lazy people prioritising their own feelings while sitting back and throwing stones. In the words of the great Dr King, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Some of us are posting on social media, Some of us are protesting in the streets. Some are donating silently. Some of us are having tough conversations with our friends and family. Societal change has many lanes. Let's be kind to others who are travelling in the same direction. Just keep your foot on the gas. One of the ways that I engaged with conversations surrounding the recent rise of the alt-right in Britain was through my songwriting. Screwdriver is a song we wrote about the mechanics of intolerance. 
Looking back at times of economic instability, we see how easily deep chasms grow in society and how people seek change wherever it's most convincingly promised. It's when we're fed the rhetoric that our neighbours, or Johnny Foreigner, is the one responsible for our problems, that nationalism inevitably raises its ugly head above the parapet once again. I was taught that in GCSE history class, and it's always stuck with me. But something I've learned in my career is that music has the power to unite and remind us of all that we have in common. So the message in Screwdriver really isn't meant to be a pessimistic one. It's a song about seeing past our differences and recognising ourselves as a whole, united against a common enemy, discrimination. It's also got a pretty decent guitar solo in it, and you'll get a chance to hear the album version of that song at the end of this podcast. Rennie Edo Lodge is a British writer and journalist whose work primarily focuses on intersectional feminism and exposing structural racism. Her debut book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, was released in 2017 and immediately sparked a national conversation about eradicated black history and the inextricable link between class and race. Since George's death, sales of Rennie's book have seen a huge surge, making her the first black British author to top the UK book charts. Celebrating the news, Rennie stated that her work stands on the shoulders of so many giants before her, but also found herself asking why the barriers were there in the first place. It pains me to know, she said, that the present is still history, that we're making it with our hands right now. I want to thank Rennie for recording a passage from her book, especially for things worth fighting for. It's an honour to have her on the pod. Another powerful force helping change the face of publishing today is the guest I'm about to speak to. Our guest on today's episode of Things Worth Fighting For is an author, screenwriter, columnist for The Observer and a mentor to young novelists in Bristol where he lives, Nikesh Shukla. In 2016, Nikesh edited and crowdfunded his book, The Good Immigrant, an award-winning collection of essays by 21 writers of colour ruminating on race and identity in Britain, featuring hugely influential names such as Riz Ahmed, Nish Kumar and Vinay Patel, carving out a space for marginalised voices in the so-called mainstream. I first met Nikesh back in January this year when we invited him to talk at Speaker's Corner, our panel event at the YouTube space in London. If you'd like to watch the video, you can find a link down in the show notes. I met with Nikesh again in February of this year for the podcast, Before Lockdown, so we had the great joy of hanging out in person at my house in London. And as you'll discover, we also had a special visit from a familiar face. Thanks for listening to my ramble. I'm now going to pass you over to Nikesh, and I'll meet you on the other side. Hey, how's it going? I feel like I sh- I'm probably best known to you guys as your drummer's cousin. <laughs> well, this is the first thing I was going to ask you, actually. We've got, a, we've got a mutual connection in the form of Kapil Trivedi. Yeah, young Kapil. It's, it's been amazing to watch, to just watch everything. Like, I feel like I've been at most of, like, every single album you've done, I've been at one of the shows for it. And it's just been amazing to kind of just watch him fly, but also just still be the same caps from the ends who I grew up with, you know? Yeah. We're sort of second cousins, but because we were like the two people in our family who did, who had artistic dreams, we kind of like bonded over that quite quickly. I feel like I really remember seeing the video for You Can't Fool Me, Dennis, on 
wow. maybe MTV2 once and then seeing Coppola and going, oh, you said he was in a band. Wait, this band. And then like, like a couple of weeks later, I just saw him at like some family function. I was like, hold on a minute. You said you were in a band. Like, this is quite a big <laughs> band, man. What's going on? Yeah, so where to start? I mean, I'd love to go back to, you know, talking about Caps, talking about, um, you know, our mutual connection. I'd love to go back to your roots. So you're originally from Harrow, northwest London. Yeah, so yeah, I grew up in Harrow. My my first novel is pretty much my feelings about growing up because I kind of grew up in this large Gujarati community and I, I went to this sort of super posh school and that's uh, coconut unlimited yeah coconut unlimited and like just sort of navigating those two spaces was always really weird like i went to the same school as um riz ahmed and Mehdi hassan and like we all had very different experiences of that school i had i think probably the worst experience of right. the three of us but um you know like obviously still in touch with riz and still working with them on a bunch of stuff but um did you guys work on a screenplay together or yeah, he, he and I were talking once and we kind of came up with this dumb idea for a sitcom that I then took to Channel 4 and did a comedy lab for it and he was supposed to be in it but then he ended up going to America to film, I think, The Reluctant Fundamentalist. Uh, and we're working on a, a super secret project at the moment. Amazing. I mean, three of the characters from the first book, Amit, Anand and Nishan, were they based on real people in your life at that time? Yeah, they were kind of ciphers for me and my two best friends. Like Amit is actually my first name and Anand and Nishan, they were just sort of, you know, they were composites of people I grew up with. Um, and the, the real Anand and Nishan were like my childhood friends who I kind of did everything with. You know, like if most novels are sort of interrogating so, some sort of, asking some sort of big question about the world or sort of interrogating some sort of central thematic argument, I really wanted to kind of, think about what makes a person a person when the two spaces where they should feel most comfortable, they spend the most time, like school and home, when they don't feel like they belong in either of those spaces. And it's very much about them kind of trying to work out what space belongs to them. And and like... Because it is a private school they go to in, yeah, the, in the book. Yeah, yeah. And they, they sort of, they feel like they're too brown to be at the private school. And then they go go home and they feel like they're, because they're community kind of sees them as the, the, boy, the brown boys who go to the posh white school, they kind of see them as like not really part of that community and so but then at home they're not brown enough yeah is it that so, kind of idea yeah so they sort of feel in between and i wanted to write something that really kind of interrogated that feeling uh, it, and it was in the mid-90s i think in the mid-90s we used to throw around the word, word coconut like this awful insult and i think it's because in the 90s you were either one thing or another sure and you know because we didn't have things like the internet to kind of bring us to our tribes as it yeah. were and so we only saw what it meant to be Asian is quite quite a binary thing. Sure. And like what's really nice now is you have, it's so much more nuanced and com complex and resembling real life, which is yeah. really nice. Yeah. But uh, so in 1994, I was watching TV with my mum and dad and sister and this advert came on, uh, this trailer came on uh, BBC One for this new um, miniseries uh, called The Buddha of Suburbia, starring like a, a young Naveen Andrews and he, he just looked beautiful and like, it was like, getting off with girls and taking drugs and listening to Bowie. And it would look like the same sort of cruddy suburb of London that I was in. I was like, I need to watch this show. This was like the first time I'd ever seen someone who looked like me on TV in a situation that wasn't Bollywood uh, or, or certainly like a peer of mine, like someone who was like playing teenager. Yeah. But it kind of looked like the kind of thing you didn't want to sit next to your mom and dad. Right, right, right. And it was uh, subversive. <clears throat> And it looked like it had a lot of shagging in it as well. Okay, yeah. And I didn't know how to use the video recorder. So I, I, but then it said based on the novel by Hanif Qureshi. 
So I got, I remember getting the novel out of the library and the first line of it goes, my name is Kareem Amir and I'm a, I know I'm an Englishman through and through almost. And that one word almost just completely changed my life because it was the first time I'd kind of seen myself on the page and I just felt connected to something. I suddenly didn't feel like an outsider. I suddenly didn't feel like I needed to fit into the binary of what my community thought was Gujarati and what my school thought was being Indian. I, mm. I suddenly felt like I could be complicated and normal and not an outsider. It was really, really powerful. And and so like whenever I sort of talk about the importance of seeing yourself on screen or in books or like, it, it's a really powerful thing. There's, there's a really beautiful anecdote which you've told about a monster never seeing its reflection. Yeah, it's a quote by Juno Diaz, which is, which is um, a kind of a complicated uh, quote to repeat if you know what's going on with Juno Diaz at the moment. But, um, it, but he said some amazing things where he, uh, he said, uh, the thing about vampires is they have no reflection. Monsters have no reflection. And the thing I always thought about wasn't that this monster has no reflection. It's that if you want to turn a human being into a monster, deny them at the cultural level any reflection of themselves. And so, you know, when we have like our first female Doctor Who and we have conversation, you know, we have Dev Patel playing David Copperfield sure. and, and and we have people like Copperfield being a drummer in a band. Like mm. people get to visualise themselves in those spaces. It's, it's really powerful. Like it, it can sort of set people's aspiration levels, you know, at a really critical age. And like I was 14, I was starting to make decisions about who I wanted to yeah. be in the world. And like, you can't really make a decision about who you want to be when you've only seen like two very extreme versions of yourself. And then suddenly this book came along that told me I could be complicated mm. and I could be weird and I could not fit into other people's expectations of me. It was, it was really powerful. You know, do you think, I'm just thinking, I'm trying to picture sort of mid, late 90s. Do you think that was a time where the sort of traditions of what it meant to be an immigrant living in the UK, particularly in London, was being dismantled? Yeah, it was, it was interesting because I think... In in the 90s, you had the children of people who'd come over in the 60s and 70s come of age. And so their coming of age, having grown up in Britain, having been born in Britain, grown up in Britain and sort of forging a new identity that kind of navigates the tricky terrain between parents' heritage and heritage of their country and, you know, their own sense of who they want to be. And, you know, like there, there's this sort of interesting thing that happens where, you know, British, the British government talks a lot about integration. You know, it's important for people from those from immigrant backgrounds to integrate. But integration, I think, the way it's used or the way it's weaponized, it, it sort of supposes that we're all homogenous. There yes. is this sort of homogenous British identity that we must all fit into. But for me, in integrate just means like be yourself and be accepted for who you Absolutely. are. But because it becomes about conversations about whether people speak good enough English or not, mm. then it, it, it kind of becomes a nothing. So, you know, in the 90s, we were having these conversations. Of, they were having these conversations. Well, Britain is this melting pot. It's a multicultural melting pot. And the way they would describe this multicultural melting pot was saris, steel bands and samosas. Sure, sure. And, and you go, well, that's very surface. Well, it's a cartoon. Yeah. It's a caricature. Yeah. And so we never had that discussion about what it meant to be in a multicultural society but and yet we were told that's what it is yeah. and then the, the kind of the opposite end backlash of that is what's happening now in schools and so year sevens in schools are being told about British values they're being told that they have to accept British values but when you look at what British values are taught as per the curriculum they're just sort of generic rules for any basic democracy yeah. 
you know, their acceptance of democracy, the rule of law, individual liberty, and a mutual respect for people's faiths and beliefs or lack of faiths and beliefs. I would expect that in any place I go to. Absolutely. And so we haven't had a conversation about what it means to be in multicultural Britain. We haven't had a conversation about what it means to be British. And both of these things are in flux at the moment. And what... I think the other thing worth noting is that, I mean, nationality is a bit like sexuality. I mean, it's a human construct. Mm. It isn't actually a real thing. It's a way of, you know, I suppose it comes in kind of identity politics. It's a construct that we make in order to know how we relate to others. And, and the idea of racism is, to an extent, a social construct that was used to categorise people. It was it was used as as a way of keeping people in line. Yeah. So I I've, I really feel like you can draw a line between like the skeptics in the pub movement, where people would like people who didn't really know anything but kind of wanted to talk about pseudo intellectual things would get in the pub and chat about things. Yeah. And then you can draw a line from that to like flat earth theory through to like people going well. If we've questioned the very notion of science and whether science uh, is right or not about things like whether the Earth is flat or yeah. whether um, climate change, the climate emergency is real, um, well, all of this debunked eugenics, uh, race science stuff that was debunked decades and decades ago, maybe we should revisit that. Right. Maybe maybe the shape of people's skulls do indicate their intelligence levels and all this sure. kind of stuff. It's bonkers. Yeah. I, I can't talk about it with expertise. If you want to read about if you want to read a book that debunks race science, there are two amazing books. There's Superior by Angela Saini and there's How to Argue with a Racist by Dr. Adam Rutherford, which actually just came out a week of recording. Yeah, it's, it's just, we live in a strange time. We do, we do. I mean, I mean, you've talked about how in your parents' generation there was this work hard, don't make an example of yourself, don't stick your head above the parapet mindset. But you very much do stick your head above the parapet and there's a lovely family story which connects you to your uncle. Yeah, so my uncle, my dear Mesh Mama, he was the first person in my mum's family to come over to the UK in the 60s. And while he was there, he, he wanted to buy a house, basically, so like the rest of the family could come over. And, the, um, and they came over and he, he, he borrowed some money from this place where he was doing an apprenticeship and there was some family money and some money like savings that he'd had and he took the family to look at this new housing estate being built in Huddersfield and when he, they made made an offer on the house the company that were selling houses on this estate said that they had a company policy not to sell to coloreds because they would devalue the area and my uncle sort of said about that time like normally you would have just gone oh yeah that sucks, casual racism, it's it's a thing. But that was, it was, this was 1968 when this happened and the Race Relations Act had just come in. Mm -hmm. And the Race Relations Act had come in to kind of protect people like my uncle mm -hmm. against like casual everyday forms of racism mm -hmm. when it came to things like housing or employment or schooling or, um, you know, the, the, the things that we all hold dear as, as, a, as a community. Um, the Race Relations Act said, no, discrimination can't happen there. And so my uncle took them to court which, which in itself is, was incredibly brave at that time. Yeah, I think my mum was working for the Commission for Racial Equality and so she told someone there. And this new legislation coming and they were like, oh, we've got a test case, we can test out this legislation. But like everyone else in my family were like, don't do this. The company that loaned him the money were like, don't do this. Like Everyone was telling my uncle, don't do this. But my uncle, you know, like where, I don't know how you feel, mm. but often when people tell me one person can't make a difference, mm. I always think, 
how big or small is the difference? Mm. Look at Greta Thunberg, for Absolutely. example. But one person can make a difference because my uncle, against everyone's advice, stood up and said, I'm going to fight for what's right. I'm going to fight for what I believe in. And he took this case to court. It tested out the legislation. The, the, gov- the judge had to dismiss the case because of uh, some legal technicalities. But in his dismissal, he said, had he tried it, he would have found in favour of my uncle because discrimination had definitely taken place. And the company changed their policy because of my uncle. Yeah. And I just think about that bravery. And I yeah. just think that it's so easy to feel powerless yeah. these days. You know, I think, you know, especially if you're someone who uses social media a lot, I think mm. we feel so powerless that we think that quote tweeting Trump and calling him a dickhead is mm. going to be the thing that, you know, it's a release for us. Yeah. But actually, we're just throwing more noise into the ether and it can kind yeah. of become quite demoralizing if Trump then doesn't see that sure. tweet that calls him a dickhead and doesn't go, well, you know what? You're right. I am. Yeah. Uh, but it's so easy to just do that and do that and do that and see that nothing you do makes a difference and you use your vote and nothing makes a difference and you um, go on a march and nothing yeah. makes a difference. But actually, the thing that I've been thinking about a lot is I think if we as individuals aim all of our efforts at the macro, then mm. we will lose sight of the micro. And actually, sure. I think it's really important to start small and build outwards. And I think, and I think Greta Thunberg is a brilliant example of that mm. because she started with just her class absolutely and then her class became her school and then her school became her town and then her town became her country and now it's the whole world is looking i mean it would feel wrong to explore your work without starting with the good immigrant the book was published in 2016 and is an acclaimed collection of 21 bame writers ruminating on race and identity in britain i mean from riz ahmed to nish kumar zadie smith the book is an incredible accomplishment. Could you speak a little about where the seed for that book came from? Yeah, yeah, sure. This is an interesting example of how like a small frustration contributes to a national movement in a weird way. So, I, you know, I, I'm a novelist pri- primarily, that's, that's what I do. And I, I just got to a point where the only times I was being invited to speak were on diversity panels. Mm-hmm. You know, often I'd be the only brown person at publishing things and Pre-2015, 2016, when I, I started having these conversations on a, on a much bigger scale than I had been previously, things were bad. Like, there'd been a whole generation of British readers who hadn't had, like, that many new books by writers of colour come out. And that, and that was a problem. Like, in, they did a survey that, and in, like, 2015, like, one book by a black British male was, was released. Wow. And, you know, we ran a prize, actually, the Jalluk Prize, which if you wanna if you wanna Google Jalluk Prize and Philip Davis, you can find out how a Tory MP tried to take us down. Right, and I suppose that's that's happened in the wake of the book. Yeah, so so but we but we worked out that like out of like the hundred and sixty five thousand new titles that came out in the UK in like twenty fifteen, like one hundred twenty two of them were by British writers of colour. If you took away all the self-published people that left like 80 odd books, if you took away all the cookery books that left 50 books, mm. the last 50 books that were for kids, teenagers, adults, non-fiction, fiction, crime, sci-fi, fantasy, romance, creative non-fiction, like reference books and so on and so forth. And we were just like, this is, this is preposterous. That's mm. like less than 1%. The national percentage of BAME people in the UK was like, what, 14% at the time? Mm. But in London, it's always been like in the low 40s. Yeah. I just was sick of whining about it on Twitter. 
And I did this one diversity panel that was just like the last one I, I, I would ever do. And I was just, something so egregious happened on that panel yeah. where um, I was sort of saying that like what part of the problem was that the industry was largely staffed by white middle class people who could afford to live in London. Mm -hmm. And that meant that they weren't, you know, where they did choose people of colour to publish, it was always like very fetishised, this is what white people would read. And I felt it was a problem. And the person sitting next to me, who's like one of the most prominent editor, literary editors in the entire country, has definitely edited some of your favourite books, mm. was like, well, you say that, but my, in my entire career, I've never once been sent a CV by a black girl. Those were her exact words. Mm. And I was about to go, how do you know this? Mm. A black woman stood up in the audience and said, and she said her name, which was something, and I'm going to change the name because she still has to work in this world. Mm. She said, hi, my name is Anna Johnson. I've uh, applied to work in this publisher seven times. I don't know how you'd know from my CV that I'm black. And it was that kind of unconscious bias and level of ignorance and sort of reliance on this myth of a meritocracy, which I think yeah. is so such a toxic thing in British society to assume that the best people get have the best opportunities. I, I was I was walking to the tube station after that, and I was uh, I was like I was like composing the best tweet, mm. but I didn't get to send it before I went down into the tube, and actually that was probably the thing that. Save me because by the time I think I, the best tweets the ones that you just chuck in your draft. Yeah, <laughs> and I got out the other end to get on my train back to Bristol, and I was like, you know what, I'm not going to send that tweet. I'm going to do something else. Yeah. And um, so the idea for the Good Immigrant was born. What Nikesh mentions here made me think about something I heard the African American novelist Toni Morrison speak about: this notion that white people need to see themselves reflected in all corners of culture, even in the works of writers of colour. It may be an obvious thing to point out, but perhaps the reason for this could be that the majority of literary gatekeepers are still, yeah, white middle-class people. Here's Tony speaking about the issue in a televised interview back in 1998. Tony Morrison, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome. You have in your writing certainly marginalised whites. Why are they of no particular interest to you, or seemingly no particular interest? <laughs> Well, I was interested in another kind of literature that was not just confrontational, black versus white. I was really interested in black readership. For me, the allegory or the parallel is, is, is black music, which is as splendid and complicated and wonderful as it is because its audience was within. The fact that it has become universal worldwide is because it wasn't tampered with and editorialized so I wanted the literature that I wrote to be that way. I wanted to feel free not to have the white gaze. You don't think you will ever change and write books that incorporate white, white lives into them substantially? I have done. Mm. You can't understand how powerfully racist that question is, can you? Because you could never ask a white author, when are you going to write about black people? Even the inquiry comes from a position of being in the center and saying, you know, is it ever possible that you will enter the mainstream? It's inconceivable that where I already am is the mainstream. That was Toni Morrison, the Nobel Prize winning novelist, talking about the white gaze back in 1998. Now let's fast forward to 2020 and go back to Nikesh. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Last year, you published the American edition of The Good Immigrant. Yeah. How, how did that differ from the process of putting together the English edition well actually there are a bunch of differences one we had to take the title seriously yeah so you know in england calling about the good immigrant is you know we're being sarcastic yeah. but in america the conversation around immigration and race race are different so like i can't ask a black american writer to be part of a book called the good immigrant because they're not there because of immigration mm. you know um whereas here because the immigration story is different. Mm-hmm. Basically, I'm saying, like, you can't approach people who are, like, descendants of slaves. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, and... in Britain, it's, 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 it's an ex-colonial empire, and that's where, uh, you know, that accounts for, for why our society is as diverse as it is. But in America, as you said, it's, it's, it's a very different... Um, there's a very different history there. Yeah. And so we asked lots of writers to basically respond to immigration issues in america and also i'm not i'm not i don't live in america mm. <clears throat> if i'm lucky i get to go there once a year for like a week yeah. um but one of the contributors to the original edition shimen suleiman who's like my sister my collaborator my like one of my best friends one of my favorite writers she moved to america like four or five years ago so i asked her if she'd co-edit it because i really trust her and so the, di- the main difference was that curation became a collaboration. Like, the first one is funny. It's a funny book because, yeah. like, I have roots in writing comedy. Uh, whereas this one is a lot more poetic because she has her roots in writing poetry. Mm. But actually, the main fundamental difference between the two books that I, I, I find fascinating is the first book, The Good Immigrant, we did it f- clear of Brexit. Mm. There was no mention of Brexit in the book. It is timeless in that way because it's not hinged around a political moment Mm -hmm. whereas this trump is the sun around all of these essays orbit Mm. they're all affected by him so whether 
these are essays that take in personal histories from decades ago. They still come back to Trump. Trump is the root, and because you can't ignore him yeah. once he's there, you mm. know. And I think that's really interesting because I think the, the USA book feels like much more of a, a statement of a moment than mm. the first book did. I mean, I, d- I suppose just staying on the topic of the book is, I mean, one of the themes that we've covered on the podcast, as well as Speaker's Corner, is the refugee crisis. And something that was heard a lot in the camps in Calais, in the jungle, was this notion that England represented the promised land and offered this new beginning, a new start. I mean, how true do you think that is today? It's interesting. I um, So I was a youth worker for about five years. I worked on a, a youth project in Bristol called Rife. And we did a couple of projects and it was all about sort of making content about issues that were important to young people in Bristol. And one of the, we we worked with uh, a women's refugee group to make some content. But what they were saying in this group was like, all you know, all that stuff, all those headlines that you see, like you see them, Mm. we don't see them. Mm. A lot of them hadn't seen like a lot of those front pages, Mm. those kinds of columns by people like Katie Hopkins. And so... I think a couple of them were surprised by how unhospitable Britain was mm. and unwelcoming. So a friend of mine, Dina Nayeri, who's a who's a writer, she, inspired by The Good Immigrant, she wrote a piece for The Guardian called The Ungrateful Refugee, which then turned into a memoir about her, her refugee story. It's an amazing book. She the, she, the thing that she talks about, uh, even crops up in The Good Immigrant, is this... This idea of gratitude. Mm. There's this. There's this real feeling in Britain. I think it's quite a superior feeling because Britain likes to use the word tolerance. We tolerate people more than other countries, and the, and and I, the, the idea of tolerance is an interesting one to me because tolerance isn't the same as acceptance. No, tolerance is, you know, we will allow you to be here, and we'll just sort of look. We'll just look past um, the things that we disagree with. Um, but this idea of gratitude, you know, whenever you talk about colonialism, people are like, well, you should be more grateful for the railways. Mm. Or, um, you know, the first line of Musharraq Kwonga's essay in The Good Immigrant, which, are, which is called The Ungrateful Country, the first line is, it was always, it was always a case of making sure I looked grateful. Mm. So the idea of migration or like claim, even cl- or claiming asylum uh, um, uh, or, or any of these things, you know, this idea of feeling some sort of gratitude to the country that had the empire that created so much of this turbulence for now housing us. Mm. I just, I find it, I find it difficult. I find that idea difficult. Gratitude. Absolutely. I mean, I think, Britain as a country is so quick to congratulate itself on the times historically that it's offered asylum or to celebrate how, di- how diverse a nation we are. I mean, one of the things that struck me when we met at Speaker's Corner was when Shante Joseph spoke, who I know you mentored at one yeah, point. Yeah. And actually, you know, she spoke very passionately about how ostracised British people from minority ethnic backgrounds feel today. And, you know, the Windrush obviously being the most recent Yeah, it's, and it's still, still happening that. today. Like yeah. a day of recording, like, what is it, on Monday, another plane's supposed to fly out, another deportation plane with 50 people on it. And, mm. You know, 
it's just it just keeps going and it mm. keeps going and I, I yeah. And I think it's very easy living in a country like Britain to forget that this is happening everywhere. This is happening in Norway, it's happening in Germany, it's happening in India, it's happening in China. But this is the horrible thing about all of this stuff is I think people in Britain look at those places and go, well, we're not as bad as they're, we're sure. tolerant mm. here. And it becomes another pat on the back. It, yeah, it does. It becomes self-congratulatory nothingness and and what it is is when people sort of say well you know we're tolerant we're not as bad as here we have we have certain laws that protect certain characteristics mm. but if i go back to my uncle who i was talking about earlier one of the saddest things that he ever said to me was there was a case in 2017 of this landlord in kent who refused to rent properties out to south asians because he said that they just stank stank them up with their curry smell mm. Which, as we both know, is ridiculous because curry smells delicious. But I was talking to my uncle about this, and my uncle was like, I fought this exact case 50 years ago. 50 years and nothing yeah. has changed. Yeah. And he said, they keep telling us that the laws, laws have made us all equal, that the laws have made us all equal. But what good is a law if no work has been done to change people's hearts and minds? What work is being done to change people's hearts and minds? They talk about British values, but no work has been done to change people's hearts and minds. And that's where I think it's incumbent on me as an artist to do that work, to change people's hearts and minds. Because if, if, I, if a word like almost can mm. change me and make me feel like I belong mm. as much as it did when I first read The Buddha of Suburbia, then just think what an entire book like The Good Immigrant can do, like what I can do with fiction. And that's why like, I write YA and I go into schools because I want people to have that moment where they feel like, someone is doing some work with their hearts and minds. Like being inclusive and being representative isn't just good for people like me to feel seen. It's, it's good for people who who are the majority to see difference and accept it as normal. Like we, you know, five years ago, people couldn't, people were willing to suspend their disbelief enough for a film where there were ghosts that needed busting, but they couldn't suspend their disbelief enough for the thought that four women could do it. This is the, the female ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah, like, and that's the society we live in. Like, yeah. it's, it's a lack of imagination. And, and I do think that this is why I'm so adamant that, like, the media we consume can change people's lives. Man, yeah, I mean, I feel that, you know, I can feel your passion so much. And I think, um, I mean, several things, I think, the example you gave of the landlord. I mean, I think those those cockroaches have never actually gone away. I think they've been hiding behind the walls. And I think it's in this post-EU referendum environment that has normalised those people or made them feel able to step forward and actually express those views again. Yeah, but, it's, it's like, you know, if you have Nigel Farage on Question Time mm. all of the time, getting his right-wing talking points across, what happens is like, confirmation bias on the right and on the left on the left they go how dare the bbc put him on this how dare they do that his views are disgusting and on the right they go he is on a prime time show mm. saying the things that i believe if he can say it on bbc's flagship political program then i can say it in the pub i can say it at the bus stop and that's the reality of these things this sort of search for balance means that all we're doing is put put putting fascists on on tv in the name of balance and the people who agree with them are going, well, you've basically just said that this is okay because you're not challenging them because you want him. I think what people think is going to happen is 
or just let him talk himself into a corner. Lakesh, what's up? <laughs> Hi. Caps have just walked into the room um, with some... We're going to force him to be on the podcast No! Well, I mean, Caps, since you've joined us... Oh, shit. I want to talk about music. So, obviously, Nikesh, one of the things we haven't talked about is that in a previous life, you used to get behind a mic. Yeah. You had a musical career. I was a very average rapper. I came to one of your gigs. I know, it was terrible, wasn't it? It was good, man. It was good. You know what? Like... You know, there are certain things where you're like, I'm obsessed with this enough to really work at it. Yeah. And there are certain things where you're like, I can doodle. Yeah. And that for me was like doodling. Like I was, with rapping, I was really, I was concerned with the lyrics more than the flow and the voice. And so I just never really worked on my flow. It was always very much a Chuck D inspired, but 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 Here's my political thing that I'm saying. And <laughs> I, it just never really, uh, progressed much further than that and at some point it was time to put the mic down and pick up a pen yeah which was which i'm sure the uk rap scene is very thankful or <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they feel robbed you know there's, there's a great talent there yeah there you go but th- so that must have been where the seed for coconut unlimited came from yeah yeah so the first novel was basically like my my ode to my years as mm. a shit rapper basically <laughs> Because it's about self-delusion and like the lies that we tell ourselves to kind of that help us become the people that we're meant to be. Mm. For years, I just thought I was really great. <laughs> I was not. And there's like the this is sad thing about being an average rapper is you either ha- you have to be amazing because so, so many of the lyrics are about bravado. Yeah. Mm. Or if you're shit, then you have to have like a thing about you, like old dirty bastard. Like the things you, you say have to be so unhinged that no one's really listening to the voice. <laughs> um, but I was just sort of in between. I was average, and that was no one. No one needs an average rapper. Mm. I mean, one of the places I think a lot of our listeners uh, will know you from is your TED talk, which is a huge achievement in itself. Mm. And in the talk, you mention having gone to the venue, the Royal Festival Hall, when you're a teenager, and having seen Asian Dub Foundation. There. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I actually, I think I got well because I said I think I said it'd been twenty years, but. So uh, one of the Asian Dub Foundation members later on pointed out that I was I'd got the year wrong. It was two thousand and two, so yeah, I, I and I can't remember who was curating Meltdown that year. It might have been Bowie. I think it was Bowie. Yeah, yeah. So it, I, I, I kind of I'd met Asian Dub Foundation at a student gig, where I'd like hung around and waited for them. I think my vitriol was supporting them. Amazing. Wow. Um, and. Um, chat to them they, you know they're just an kind of character yeah, yeah. and they, they kind of just took me in yeah and they were like and uh they just sort of mentored me for a bit and it was really nice and then they invited me to come down to this gig at Royal festival hall and i was just standing there in the front going i want to be on that stage one day and it just took me a while to work out what was going to get me on that stage and it turned out doing a ted talk was the thing it was a really, it was a really powerful moment like and it was really inspiring as well to watch i mean as you said putting yourself in the mindset of a young British Asian person seeing someone such as yourself on a stage like that in that kind of a cultural space. We need those things. We need visible role models for us. I'd say the same thing about in the disabled community. You know, we need to see people who resemble us. We need to see ourselves reflected in culture to kill off the imposter syndrome. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I, um, I remember saying to a couple, a couple of weeks ago, actually, um, like 
the fact that one of like the biggest bands in the country has an Asian drummer and you're not like you're not making a thing about it, you're just there, you're just taking up that space. That sends a message as much as anyone who's like actively going, blah, 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 politics, politics, politics. Like mm. taking up the space is just as important as talking about taking up that space, mm. I think. And and I think it's really powerful. Like I've always been like I've always been so super proud to see you up on like I've seen you at what a roundhouse when you did roundhouse when you did the uh, you were there obviously yeah Bloomsbury Ballroom like mm, yeah. all all of those spaces just seeing you on that stage and owning it it was just always really powerful I thought oh, yeah. and you know going to a lot of gigs I would always see more Asians in the audience although I was probably related to one of them but <laughs> yeah that's yeah, pretty what it was there was actually an incredible moment we were talking about Manchester earlier there's an incredible. Uh, Manchester, what, when we played Manchester? We, yeah, so we played it. We were talking about Gorilla, but just across the road from Gorilla... The Ritz. ...is the Ritz, which which is a venue we played a show in four or five years ago. And Caps, probably you're better off telling the story than me, but it, they, they, I saw a Kapil I'd never seen before. <laughs> <laughs> we, You know Janie on the Nubbin? Yeah. Yeah, my, our other cousins, they came up to Manchester on the train and had been drinking quite heavily. Yeah, you know, they were pretty charged when they were in the show. Uh, auntie, if you're listening, <laughs> yeah. they were drinking tea. Tea, chai, chai, just got them chai. No sugar, no sugar. They came to the, sh- they came to the show and I, we were playing two doors down and I could see Nunnan in a, in a headlock by this like this tall like seven foot dude had like Nunnan in a headlock and his mates were like, they were like punching Nunnan in the face and stuff. And what? I was like, yeah, and I was like, what the, because basically Numb's really tall, so he was in their way and he was dancing, and he's like, really, he's got bad coordination anyway, as, <laughs> as it is, so they were like, they were like pushing him, like, dude, you're stepping on our sh- shoes or whatever, and Numb's obviously like a bit gassed because his cousin's playing or whatever, so he's like, it's cool, man, don't worry, it's cool, I'm going to carry on dancing, and I'm drumming and I'm just like witnessing all of this, I'm just like seeing it, I know exactly what's going on, no one has to tell me anything, I know exactly what's going Cause on. Because obviously from the drum rise as well, you've got this kind got of panoramic it. view of the room. Yeah, you can, it's good, it, that's what's really cool about, I guess, my vantage point, you can see the whole band, you can see the whole, you can see everything, you get a good perspective on things. But yeah, you could see Numan was, then eventually he was put in a headlock, and then these guys were like, they like punched him, and they like threw Numan, and then they, and they're like high-fiving each other. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is not cool. Man. And you stopped the show. Yeah, so I like got up like halfway through the song. I've never done that before, ever. I got up halfway through the song, went to the mic, and I was like, those fucking guys, like, that's my cousin. Don't fucking punch him, blah, 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 blah. And then Blaine oh was like, God. yeah, and then Blaine, Blaine, got, Blaine said a few things as well. Well, I'm, but, I mean, out. the most amazing thing, obviously you stepping forward and making that stand was, was incredibly powerful. But I think also the... Uh, the support that mm. the room, you know, the, the empathy and the support that the room showed was incredible. And actually that felt so encouraging and so positive mm. that we, that in that a gig can be a safe space and that, that actually that is, other than a few pissed up, you know, large mm. louts, mm. that is the environment that, that we want at shows. Just flying back to the 90s when we were growing up, I feel like there was a, kind of cultural moment there was Brimful of Asher Tavern Singh won the Mercury Prize in 99 artists like Nitin Sawney entering the mainstream and you could hear the influence of that even with Neptunes you know Britney Slave for You Bowie and Madonna kind of embracing Indian culture in, in, in their music I mean do you feel like that changed the musical landscape in a in a positive way or did that feel like cultural appropriation to you? We 
in our community, we joke about that as the one summer it was cool to be Asian. <laughs> Which is, because there was, yeah, there was like that, it was like between 96 and 99, there was a lot of, there was a lot of stuff happening. I think, and I think a, a, a lot of credit has to go to Sanjeev and Mira and Kulvinda and Nina for goodness gracious me, because mm. it showed that we could be funny and self-effacing and political. And that mm. kind of created a space for, you know, weird bands like Corner Shop to finally have their moment mm. after years and years of plugging away. And for bands like Asian Duff Foundation to take the political end of what goodness gracious me were doing and take it to like a, a really radical space. And the, Cultural appropriation conversation I find difficult because I think I think the way it's talked about is like there is a consistent rule. I think, you know, there's obviously a, a difference between appropriation and appreciation. Mm. And there's a difference between... My, my feeling is like if you're benefiting financially from a thing that is either quite everyday for people or has um, been the cause of like stereotypes for people... Mm then that, that to me is an issue. Like, and I think a really good example is like Emma Darbery, uh, who wrote a book called Don't Touch My Hair, goes into the, you know, the politics of being a black woman with hair. And like, you know, obviously, go and read that book rather than just listen to me wang on about it. But you know, the, where you know, black women have worn their hair in braids and been seen as unprofessional. And then people like one of the Jenners, I don't know which one of the Jenners, they kind of make a big fashion statement and get box braids and suddenly they're getting all these sort of contracts and, and you know earning money off the fact that they're kind of wearing a costume of yeah uh, of of it where you know but i think you kind of just have to take things as they come like contextually i don't having grown up on like in the golden age of hip-hop and where sampling was a free-for-all i didn't feel like people sample like timberland sampling lots of bollywood samples was particularly appropriative mm. because the beetle was banged as well <laughs> yeah. um i just wish he'd stopped doing that the, the model rap thing that they would do over, over them but um but it for me it's like it's it's it's, it's where like financial reward kind of bleeds into like perpetuating certain socioeconomic factors and that's a problem for me, yeah, you know? Absolutely. Hi there. This is the bit in a podcast where you might normally hear an advert for something, but instead of telling you about Squarespace or MailChimp, I want to talk to you about a great book called Natives, Race and Class in the Ruins of an Empire by the BAFTA and MOBO award-winning artist and academic Akala. Part biography, part geosocial study, it's a powerful personal story and also the kind of black history education we should be getting in British schools, but aren't. I was born in the 1980s in the mother country of the British Commonwealth, the seat of the first truly global empire, the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution and the epicentre of global finance. The 1980s was also the decade of Thatcherite Reaganite ascendancy. The golden age of capitalism had ended in 1973 and the 1980s saw the start of the rollback of the post-war welfare state, increased sell-off of public assets and the embrace of an individualistic, self-made logic by the very generation that had become wealthy with the support of free universities and cheap council houses and had literally been kept alive by the newly constructed National Health Service. What are the social and historical forces that even allowed my parents to meet? I am the child of a British Caribbean father and a Scottish English mother. My teenage parents were never married and they separated before I was born. 
The first time I saw someone being stabbed, I was 12, maybe 13. The same year I was searched by the police for the first time. I first smoked weed when I was nine, and many of my uncles, meaning biological uncles, as well as family friends, went to prison. My upbringing was, on the face of it, typical of those of my peers who ended up meeting an early death or have spent much of their adult lives in and out of prison. That was an extract from the audiobook of Natives, read by Akala himself. Thanks for listening. Now let's go back to Nikesh. Obviously, Nish Kumar, the comedian, is a close friend of yours. The video which went viral of him last year, of him being booed at cricket, charity lunch, over Brexit jokes, was sadly probably the first time a proportion of the population actually heard of him. I mean, whoever booked him had obviously never watched The Daily Mash. Mm-hmm. How do you feel that that moment was received? If you watch the reaction to Nish in that video and you watch the reaction to videos from the MASH report that get clipped and how the day of Brexit, the, the Horrible Histories video that he didn't even make, he just like introduced it, that was filmed like 10 years ago and how he became like the like a torrent of abuse from the right. Like there are a lot of political comedians out there and a lot of political comedians who, take a, who have publicly taken a stance, leave or remain what is the one thing about Nish Kumar that means that he attracts all of the ire of Piers Morgan, mm. Andrew Neil, mm. all of these right-wing commentators? And what is it about Nish, mm. Nishant Kumar mm. that gets people more riled up? And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about who gets to be critical. He's a brown man criticising Brit- Britain mm. and the status quo in Britain. Mm. And that's why he gets held to a higher high level of account higher level of scrutiny than other political comedians. Like, they're not doing that to Stuart Lee. Mm. Like, every week in Stuart Lee's um, Observer column, he, he refers to Boris Johnson as, like, Boris, Boris Watermelon Smiles, picking in his with Watermelon Smiles, or whatever it is. <laughs> Johnson, like, he goes for him every week. Yeah. He's not trending on Twitter yeah. for, mm. for that. Mm, yeah. But what is it about Nishant Gumar? Mm. And it's because, being, being brown, he doesn't get to be critical. He has to be grateful. Mm. Yeah. That gratitude is something we've talked about a bit. And I mean, reading The Boxer, something that comes up a lot is this sort of riff of it's my fault, it's mm. my fault. I wanted to talk to you about that. I mean, there's something about the repeating of that phrase that gives it this immense power that runs through the book. Mm. That feels related to that. Yeah, so, I mean, The Boxer came from a really dark place. There was an incident that happened to me on a train and I didn't get beaten up. I mean, the kid in the book gets beaten up, but it, like the novelist brain kind of kicked in and I kind of started going, well, I wonder what, ha- what would have happened if they had kicked the shit out of me for being Asian mm. at the wrong time on the wrong train. And the thing that I thought about, because I, I was nearly beaten up for wearing a, a good immigrant sweatshirt. Really? Yeah, and then you start going, why, why am I wearing sweatshirts with slogans on them? Why am I trying to inflame people? Why am I trying to provoke people? And like, where have we heard that argument before? Like, like I'm basically trying to change my behavior for a bunch of people. Like, I shouldn't have to change the way I dress. Mm. Like, and it's, you hear the same, like, and I've said this on Twitter, like, I should, maybe I shouldn't have worn that, that thing. I mean, like, a really close friend of mine got in touch with me and she was like, that's what people say when rapists go, well, she shouldn't have been dressed so provocatively. Yeah. Like, I mean, she was like, I'm not saying it's the same as being raped, but, like, you're basically in that same mindset. Mm-hmm. Don't say that. You wear what the fuck you want. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, yeah, obviously, and obviously not trying to draw comparisons between the two, but I think it's interesting that she's mm. that she was like saying that it's it's a similar sort of mindset. Mm. Um, but this idea of it not being your fault or it being your like, but that's that's me blaming myself for other people's actions. But you can't kind of control what how people are going to react to you. You can mm. only control what you've done. And so when you start thinking about changing your behaviour to kind of fit in, you start blaming yourself in a weird way for this thing that's happened to you. Mm. Just going back to the boxer for a minute, one of my favourite scenes in the book is where Sonny's mum is teaching him how to make chana masala for the first time. Yeah. And I just thought there's so much love in the recollection of that scene. It felt it had to be autobiographical. Is that... Yeah, I mean, that that scene is probably the culmination of a lot of different ways of writing it. So my mum my died about 10 years ago and she just left this huge chasm in our family. And when we were moving my dad out of our childhood home, I was clearing out the freezer and I found a Tupperware box of her food in, in it. And I didn't know what to do with it. I was like, I can't chuck this away. So I, I defrosted it in the microwave. And suddenly, like, the kitchen that I'd grown up in smelt like my mum's kitchen again. And it was a really powerful, transformative moment for me because I'd just moved to Bristol and I was feeling a little bit at sea. Didn't really feel like my city yet, but also, like, I was mourning for my mum and, like, now I was about to lose my childhood home. And suddenly, like, I had this feeling that, you know, my mum could live again through her food. And so I got really obsessed with, like, trying to recreate her dishes and, you know, I, I wrote an essay about it. And then I did like a one person show in 2015 where I'm like, as part of a theater performance, I'd invite people around to my flat, which mm-hmm. was actually like a, you know, someone else's flat that we took over. And then I'd cook my mum's food for them. And I'd talk about memory and grief and loss. And there's a real intimacy in the act of cooking. I, yeah. th- I think in, in a lot of houses, the kitchen is like the centrifugal point around mm. which everything kind of operates. Like it's it's everyone's space. And if you're lucky, it's one person's domain, but it's everyone's space. And the kitchen for me was like a really, really powerful central point of our house. Mm. And I, I have very specific memories of it. And so, yeah, writing that scene in the box, it was just like, you know, yeah, it's just my way of kind of nodding to that. Mm. You can feel it. It also it also meant that I got to get in my favourite thing that my mum has ever said, ever, which was she when I was moving out, she asked if I wanted the rice cooker. I was like, why do I want a rice cooker? It's really easy to cook rice. She said, yeah, I know. Someone gave it to me uh, as a wedding present. That's how I knew they didn't like me. And I thought that was the funniest thing that she ever said. <laughs> But, and I'm really glad that years later I managed to get that joke into the book. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, there's one very significant topic we haven't discussed, which I know means a lot to you. Um, in The Boxer, Sonny's character has a pile of superhero comics by the side of his bed, <laughs> which he guards lovingly. But they're not just any old superhero comics, are they? No, they're probably Spider-Man. Yeah, they're Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> and Miss Marvel ones. I feel like, I know I've heard you talk about Spider-Man elsewhere as well. What's the significance of Spider-Man to you? Peter Parker, the teenage Peter Parker was just a character that really resonated with me as a teenager because I always felt such guilt and shame growing up 
and Peter Parker is entirely led by guilt and shame. And um, just, it just really resonated with me. And I found myself in those Spider-Man comics. And when he put on the mask, he got to be who he was meant to be. And so I would put on my own mask and try and be who I was meant to be. I did notice that you tweeted a GIF of, a Spider-Man GIF last week. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, uh, so this is probably dropping in the, in the months after this news has been announced, but we're in the period in which my publicist has told me I can't tell anyone, but by the time the public hears this, it won't matter, but I, I'm on the long list for the Carnegie Medal, which is like the biggest kids book prize in the world wow. for the boxer. Wow. And that's just like, that is a massive career deal for me because mm-hmm. that that is a, it's an award that's voted for by school librarians and kids. And, you know, I didn't write YA for like hipsters in their 20s, I wrote YA to, to tell kids the truth about what's going on in the world. And so like the fact that that book has reached those people, that is like a huge career highlight for me. That's amazing. Wow. That's incredible. Amazing. Right? Nikesh, this is the bit where I'm going to ask you a question that we like to ask each of our guests. What are the three things that you believe are worth fighting for? There's no way of saying this without sounding cheesy. Love, hope and family. Love, hope, and family. I'm going to say it without a question mark. Mm. Love, hope, and family. <laughs> Our time's come to an end, so I just want to say a huge thank you for giving us your time. And I know our fans and listeners will continue to be inspired by your books and your story and the messages in your books. So thank you so much for being with us. Hey, look, thank you for ensuring my cousin's had a job for the last 15 odd years <laughs> or what have you. No, that, like, it's honestly... I've been there as a fan like the entire time and it's just been amazing to watch you guys just grow as people as musicians as storytellers and to just go from strength to strength and i'm just incredibly proud of all of you likewise man thanks man yay he's my cousin he's my cousin (laughs) thank you for listening to episode four of things worth fighting for and also to both Rennie and Nikesh for sharing their words with me. If you haven't read Rennie's book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, I can't recommend it highly enough. I would really argue that it's essential reading, as is her accompanying podcast about race. Nikesh's book, The Good Immigrant, is also an essential read, and I loved his 2019 novel, The Boxer, too. Links to all of these, as well as loads of other resources and videos in the show notes. We'll be back very soon with another episode, so stay tuned. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe and give us a cheeky rating if you enjoyed the show. It's really useful in helping others discover us and join in these conversations. This episode was brought to you by Acast and produced by Matthew Twaits. Cheers, Matt. And thanks to Courtney Aisha Mortimer at UROC for all her help and coordination skills. And now, to play you out, we're going to listen to Screwdriver from our new album, A Billion Heartbeats. See you next time.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.